In the news and on social media, we very often hear about the environmental and social impacts of climate change in the so-called provinces of British Columbia and Ontario and the activism that is happening there around these impacts and issues. But what about other provinces and territories? What kind of work is happening in those places that isn't always receiving media attention? There are so many youth doing amazing things across the whole country, and in this episode, we want to highlight some of the ways these provinces and territories that are least talked about in mainstream media are being impacted by climate change, what's being done to adapt to these changes, and how youth are getting involved. Hi everyone, salut à tous et toutes. My name is Jordan Kilgore, and I use she, her, elle pronouns. I've had the privilege of living, working, and playing on the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabeg, and the Algonquin Anishinaabeg Nation in so-called Ottawa, Ontario, and Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabeg, Attawandaron, and the Mississaugas of the Credit in so-called Guelph, Ontario, but currently reside on the traditional unceded territories of the Mi'kmaq in what is currently known as Moncton, New Brunswick. I am a project coordinator and member of the Suit Research Team, I come to you today with the following positionality. I am a white, neurodivergent, cisgendered, heterosexual woman of European and French Canadian descent. The intersections of these identities and experiences have impacted who I am and given me many privileges, including the privilege of obtaining a post-secondary education. It has also protected me from many of the systemic inequalities and discrimination that Black, Indigenous, other communities of color, LGBTQ2IA+, and other communities experience every day across what is currently Canada. My intention in this episode is not to speak on behalf of any of these communities, but to provide space for youth with these identities and lived experiences to tell their stories and truths, learning and unlearning beside you all as we hear from our amazing guests today. Today we will be speaking with Annie Martell, Ella Kim Marriott, and Lily Baraclau to learn more about the climate movement in Manitoba, Alberta, and Nova Scotia, respectively. Hi, Annie. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Do you want to start off by just telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so my name is Annie Martel. I am a Red River Métis woman from a small community called St. Pierre, which is just um, about 40 minutes southeast of Winnipeg. Um, it's located on Treaty 1 territory here in Manitoba. Um, I'm currently a master's student at the University of Winnipeg in the Master of Environmental and Social Change program. Um, and I just moved back home last year. I had been um, on the East Coast for my undergrad at Mount Allison University. So yeah, I'm really happy to be back home and, and doing research in, in my community. So that's that's me. <laughs> that's awesome. Um... How have you been involved in the climate movement in Manitoba since you moved back? So since moving back to Manitoba, um, getting involved in climate action here has been a big priority of mine. Um, It's something that I felt like I was kind of missing out on being on the East Coast um, and just felt like a lot of of the research and work I was doing um, for my undergrad related to Manitoba and environmental issues here. Um, So I've only been back for um, a little bit over a year now. Um, but I've been involved with the Youth Advisory Council. I'm the chair for that this year, which has been a really great opportunity to connect with other youth um, who have similar goals and vision for how we want our province to look like in the future in regards to the climate crisis. 
Um, I've been involved in various uh, student groups at my university as well, at University of Winnipeg, uh, more specifically within my program. Um, but I'm still kind of looking for other ways to um, kind of like insert myself in, into the climate justice and climate movement stuff happening in Manitoba. And so I'm really looking forward to where it's going to take me. Um, so far, so good. I like the path that I'm on and I've been enjoying um, the work that I've been doing with other folks, other youth. Um, so I'm really excited to connect with more along the way as my time here goes on. That's awesome that you've gotten to get so plugged in so quickly with a few different things since you've come back in the in the past year. That's awesome. Um, what role have youth played specifically in the climate movement in Manitoba? Yeah, I think youth are an integral part of the climate movement in Manitoba. Um, this is not to discredit any other generations, any other folks working on the climate movement, but I definitely noticed that youth are really pushing, putting pressure um, on climate action and, and really demanding things to change. Um, there's various organizations and groups that youth are kind of leading in Manitoba, um, which are really focused on, on moving things forward. Um, so I think generally, the youth are kind of spearheading um, climate action in the province, which is really wonderful to see. I think in the past, youth have been kind of discredited and not seen as having enough knowledge or experience dealing with the climate crisis. But we grew up, our generation grew up um, with climate change on our minds since we were little kids hearing about it. Um, and so we have experienced changes. We do have knowledge just because we're young doesn't discredit the fact that we can still be experts in this field. That's so true. Um, I love that you said that. And that's not, <laughs> it was really important. Um, yeah, youth are just huge and like fighting for our futures. And it is our future, right? So like we have such a huge stake in it for sure. Um, so you mentioned that you're doing your master's and research at the University of Winnipeg. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the research that you're doing? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm, I'm quite excited about my research. I absolutely love what I'm doing. So I'm currently looking at how um, Métis knowledge in my community and two surrounding Métis communities um, can inform climate change adaptation um, and hopefully act as a model for other Métis communities. And it's also about kind of reclaiming knowledge that has been um, lost or uh, suppressed. Um, so it's kind of working at, at reclaiming this knowledge, being proud of it, and also looking at how can this knowledge inform um, how we adapt to the climate change impacts that we face. Um, and specifically, so my community is in the southeast of Manitoba. Um, and so some of the impacts that we've been seeing here that I'm also looking at are more extreme droughts and more extreme flooding. Um, those are kind of the two main topics that usually come up um, when people discuss climate change here. So I'll also be looking at those and looking at how collectively um, these three Métis communities can adapt to these impacts by utilizing our traditional knowledge. That's awesome. That's really cool. Um, are, there, <laughs> are there any um, other climate change impacts that the communities that you're working with are facing or that the province as a whole is kind of dealing with adapting to right now? Yeah, the list, unfortunately, could be endless. There are so many impacts and um, 
you know, I feel like a lot of times when we think of climate change, um, a lot of focus is on rising sea levels and more maybe coastal areas. Um, but in the prairies, we are facing a lot of extreme impacts. Um, like I said, droughts and flooding are extremely major. Um, so we're seeing more precipitation in the spring, but then drier summers. So we have years where we'll experience both severe flooding and severe droughts. Um, and this has a whole myriad of impacts as well. Um, for example, a few two summers ago, there was quite an extreme drought and even it impacted things like a woman center in Winnipeg. They were having issue accessing traditional harvesting um, of sage. The sage supplies were unfortunately quite low because of the drought. And so it has all these impacts that we don't always necessarily consider. But for example, the sage is a sacred medicine that's used in a lot of healing and spirituality. And so the drought has impacted that in a way as well. Um, but also like Manitoba is quite diverse in terms of our, our terrestrial ecosystem. So um, in the north, we have the tundra. And so um, thawing permafrost is a major issue. Warmer winters means the winter roads are extremely unreliable. And we have a lot of um, remote northern communities that rely on these winter roads um, for transporting of goods um, to access services. And so it's becoming increasingly dangerous to travel on these roads and unreliable. Um, also in terms of like fishing, a lot of people fish here on lakes and rivers, I do as well. Um, and with the warmer winter temperatures also, the, the lake ice is becoming really unpredictable. It's um, freezing up later than usual. So it's really impacting harvesting um, for many folks as well. Um, those are some of the major issues I would say. There's a lot more, um, but usually those are the ones that are, are commonly talked about. And also recently forest fires as well. Um, we know they're kind of ravaging all over Canada and Manitoba is not immune to this either. And we've seen a lot of communities, unfortunately, having to evacuate. And a lot of them are indigenous communities um, that have to evacuate due to um, forest fires. So we are also unfortunately not immune to that as well here. Yeah, wow. That's a lot of <laughs> <That's> a, lot. <laughs> a lot of wide ranging and like really complex impacts that like really trickle down and affect all areas of like life and and well being and like just everything yeah yeah like um, everything is interconnected right like people don't always realize like how one small change even though it may seem like a small change in temperature like can really severely impact things like winter roads. Um, so I think that's often like in climate policies and things, there's the lack of consideration of like the interconnectedness of all, all these issues, um, which can be a little bit frustrating at times, but yeah, it's really like, you can't just isolate one issue. They're really all connected. Uh, to build off this, I didn't send you this question before, but um, <laughs> we're talking kind of about intersectionality. I'm wondering if there's a lot of intersectional work happening around kind of the climate change impacts that are being seen and how it's affecting Indigenous communities and maybe other kind of marginalized communities in Manitoba at all. Yeah, I think um, in terms of intersectionality, um, I would say like it's more commonly talked about now that climate change is impacting um, more vulnerable communities and notably in Manitoba, a lot of, of um, BIPOC communities. Um, 
And in terms of intersectionality as well, I think, and it, this is happening in, in my research as well, like you can't look at climate justice without being intersectional. Like I'm looking at um, gender considerations as well. And a lot of past research on climate change, especially with indigenous knowledge and indigenous people, um, a lot of researchers would kind of search for men to talk about the land and their harvesting techniques without the consideration that women also have really valuable knowledge. Um, Two-spirit folk really have really valuable knowledge about the environment as well. Um, and so I think change is happening. It's a little, in my opinion, late. Um, this should have been done a long time ago, but I'm still hopeful that these changes are happening and more diverse voices are being heard. And it's not just a westernized white academic voice that's being heard in um, climate change policies, but also that like community members, local knowledge is extremely valuable. Um, women's knowledge is extremely valuable. Um, and so things are changing and you kind of see it playing out um, in the province as well. Uh, this kind of leads nicely into my next question, which was about, you know, how has the province started working towards climate adaptation? Like, are there any like plans and goals in place that they've, you know, put out there that are, you know, starting to see some fruit? Um, are they, you know, mobilizing knowledge from these communities that we're talking about at all? Um, what are we, what are you seeing kind of in Manitoba that's being done to address um, the changes that are coming with our climate? In a way, I think it's better if adaptation is also community led with support from governments, because um, you can't kind of take a all encompassing look at adaptation without considering communities needs, um, you know, communities languages, their traditions or cultures their values are all different and so we can't take kind of a homogenous approach to climate change adaptation um, by the International Institute for Sustainable Development, looking at um, they sampled Manitoban municipalities and looking at their um, looking to see if climate change adaptation was included in their development um, emergency or watershed plans. And they found that they concluded that um, a majority did not really consider climate change adaptation. Um, and this was in 2019, right? So four years ago. So th some things have changed. And I know even from my own um, community, my town here, the village of St. Pierre, they're, they're also looking at climate change adaptation and, and really starting to consider these things. Um, and so I think some progress is being made, but it's lagging. And I think a lot of the focus has been on mitigation, which is absolutely important. But some communities like indigenous communities who contribute very little to the climate crisis but are being burdened the most um, those are the communities that really need the support for climate change adaptation um, it's really unfortunate it's not their fault that the climate crisis is occurring but they're really suffering um, from the brunt of it so yeah absolutely yeah um that's really tough and um <laughs> <laughs> and it's good to hear that there's some change happening but um definitely difficult to hear that there's some lagging um mm -hmm. I guess from your knowledge and from the research that you've been doing what solutions are out there to kind of address the impacts that we're seeing like what yeah. um what 
is going to help these communities to respond or what things are you already seeing these communities doing to kind of adapt to the the changes that they're experiencing yeah this is a hard one um <laughs> i think like one of the key barriers is probably um financial support um a lot of communities want this work to happen but maybe don't have the financial means to support this action um and again like each community is different and so finding community specific adaptation plans for example is really crucial um for assessing the specific needs of various communities in manitoba um but i think also like especially with climate change things we're often looking at okay what can we create that's new like what new programs can we create but a lot of times the solutions are already there. We just need to uplift them. Um, I think it, it's quite well known that indigenous people across the world, um, their stewardship is extremely important and they protect a lot of the world's biodiversity, but you know, comprise of a very small population. And so we need to look at, at uplifting um, their methods and their ways of stewarding and, and taking care of the land. Um, and so supporting some already on the ground efforts, especially indigenous efforts, I think is really key. Um, instead of like spending money to create all these new programs, like let's look at what's happening and support and fund these initiatives even more. Um, and I think as well, like supporting indigenous efforts, like indigenous people's view of biodiversity and conservation is often very long-term and holistic, whereas more Western ways of, of conservation has been very short-term and kind of more narrow-minded. Um, and the more long-term holistic is really crucial for adaptation planning. Um, and so we really need to look at indigenous knowledges and, and indigenous um, examples of, of stewarding the land and, and taking care of the land. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We tend to be so reactive to things uh, <laughs> and to these big disasters that come up like even recently the forest fires like it's all very reactive and um highlights a lot of areas where there are like problems and and things that need to change and are like really broken and really mm -hmm. not supporting people and, and their families and communities as they should um so yeah you're totally right and <laughs> I agree like the reactive part like obviously is important but the planning aspect is crucial and like even I'll go against the forest fires this year like you know it's it's record-breaking it seems unusual and like I don't want to say it's a new normal because I don't want to normalize um this like awful impact of climate change but looking forward like these are going to be expected there's going to be more record-breaking fires unfortunately um so how can we plan for this? We can't just be like, well, it's it's this year, it's just been kind of unusual. Like, no, this is be gonna become more common. We really need to look at how we can plan for this. And that includes both like looking at continuing to try to mitigate um, emissions while also like looking at adapting um, for the changes that have already occurred and that will continue to occur even if we drastically cut emissions today. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talked a little bit about um, supporting Indigenous-led conservation and governance and initiatives um, because they have so much knowledge. And, and you also talked about traditional eco ecological knowledge. 
and like how that's playing a role in, in some of your research. So I wonder if you can speak to that a little bit and um, if there are any kind of ongoing partnerships between municipalities or even at the provincial level to see Indigenous voices be included in kind of the agitation that's happening or conservation or any things like that? The only thing that, I, that really comes to mind are IPCAs, Indigenous Protected Areas, um, and a few of them are popping up in Manitoba, which is fantastic news. Um, and I'm definitely pro IPCAs. I think they're a wonderful idea um, and kind of really um, exemplifies the land back movement, which is so crucial to, to addressing climate justice as well. Yeah, that's kind of the only thing that comes to mind at this moment. Yeah, yeah. I wish I would know more, but... <laughs> Yeah, like I'm not sure like I feel like everything is just so new that things are really starting to pop up but like it's still kind of like gaining momentum mm -hmm. yeah. do you think that there's a lot of learning from the other provinces that are maybe doing a little bit more like are there things that are being picked up from other places and like brought into the province at all a lot of times through the prairie provinces we kind of have this reputation of being like anti-climate change which is, you know, true to certain um, regards. Some people maybe don't necessarily see it as urgently as others do, um, but there's still a lot going on and a lot of people that are working um, really hard <laughs> to kind of get things moving. Um, sorry, I totally... That's okay. I was just like uh, but... speaking and asking you questions. It's okay that you don't have answers for them. Um, <laughs> I'm just like thinking in my head about these things. Um, we can keep moving <laughs> on. <laughs> um, so uh, what do you want people to know about your province? Yeah, so I absolutely love Manitoba. Um, and being away kind of really reinforced um, my belonging to this province and, and how amazing it is. I definitely Manitoba gets a bad rep and a lot of the prairie provinces do, um, but it's a really beautiful province. And like I said, there's a lot of different territorial ecosystems or terrestrial ecosystems. Um, so we have like the prairies, the chandra, the boreal forest, and the scenery is beautiful. Our environment is beautiful. Um, also, like I said, like although Manitoba is known to be kind of by others as maybe being anti-climate change, um, maybe not kind of leading the way in climate action. Um, that's not the case for the whole province. Um, we have really amazing like individuals, communities, organizations that are really um, paving the way um, to mitigate and adapt to climate change. And so I just want people to know that um, I want these voices to be amplified and not generalize the prairie's um, perceptions of, of climate change. Um, yeah, we have really amazing work going on and a lot of it can be kind of, um, negative views of, of the prairies, but, um, I really hope we can kind of steer away from this and, and focus on, on the really great work that's happening in, in this beautiful province. Yeah, absolutely. That's the whole point of this episode. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Which I'm so happy you guys are doing this. <laughs> um, yeah, how can people who are listening to this podcast support your work or the work of other folks uh, in the province that are moving towards 
climate action and climate justice as well. Sorry, could you just repeat the question? Yeah, um, I just asked how folks who are listening can support the work that you're doing or the work of other folks or organizations in the province that are uh, working on climate action or climate justice. Yeah, um, I think listening to our work is one thing, but like amplifying Indigenous voices and knowledges in climate change discourses is extremely needed. Um, indigenous peoples um, have a really deep connection to the land and the waters, um, and a lot of this knowledge stems from generations of um, Indigenous peoples um, stewarding the land and, and living with the land. Um, and Indigenous peoples are often the first to notice climate change, but and they have really valuable knowledge on, on how to adapt to it. And so I think it's important to uplift and forefront these voices and knowledges um, also as a decolonial effort to reverse um, the triad erasure of Indigenous knowledges and Indigenous peoples. Um, so I guess my the main takeaway is really to amplify and uplift these voices, which are absolutely crucial in the climate change discourse um, and, are, and in the past have often been um, disregarded, not listened to, and um, what's the other word I'm looking for? Yeah, they just haven't really been listened to, which is really unfortunate. And a big part of that stems from colonial mindsets that are still prevalent today. And so it's really important also as a decolonial effort to, to uplift these voices that have not always been listened to. Great. And then um, I have kind of a final like fun question. Um, what's something that you like to do outdoors in your province? Yeah, so um, the winters here, I think we can all assume, and a lot of us know, can be quite harsh and very cold. Um, but some of my favorite things to do are actually in the winter, um, which is interesting because I also am not a fan of the cold. Um, <laughs> I just don't absolutely love it, but um, the winters can be long, so I always try to kind of make some time to spend some time outdoors and my family, we live um, on the Rat River here in St. Um, and it's not because of actual rats, it's muskrat. That's why it's called the Rat River, FYI. Um, <laughs> um, Métis families here used to trap muskrats, so it's named the Rat River um, due to that reason. But we spend a lot of times, uh, a lot of time in the winters just walking on the river, um, obviously when the ice is frozen. Um, and we have a lot of like kind of random family get togethers on the river. So we'll have bonfires, um, make some bannock on the fire. Um, and generally we just have like really great conversations. And um, I don't know, just being on the river, I find it so peaceful and quiet. And it really feels like, feels like a different world. Like as soon as you kind of step down onto the riverbank, onto the river, it's just absolutely beautiful and peaceful. And that's probably my favorite thing to do outside, which is funny because I'm not a fan of our winters but we always kind of try to make the most of it so that is probably my favorite thing to do that sounds really nice <laughs> um that's awesome um is there anything else that you wanted to touch on during this interview at all that I haven't already we haven't had the chance to discuss in the questions already anything about your research or 
literally anything else. I just want to give you an open space if there's something that like yeah. you wanted to talk about that I didn't touch on in the question. There's nothing that I can think of. Yeah, I think that's like pretty, pretty good overview. Honestly, I can't really remember what I talked about <laughs> for the most part, but I think I feel like I covered a lot, lot of ground. So <laughs> perfect. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast today, Annie. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Hi, Ella. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Do you want to start off by just telling everyone a little bit about yourself? For sure. Yeah. So my full name is Ella Kimariot. I'm 24 years old. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a second generation mixed Korean and European settler born and raised on the traditional and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. And I currently reside on Treaty 6 territory in so-called Edmonton. I did my honors BA in sociology at the University of, of British Columbia with a minor in environment and society. And I just completed my master of science in environmental sociology at the University of Alberta. That's awesome. And then how have you been involved in the climate movement in Alberta? Yeah, so when I lived in Vancouver, I was involved in a number of environmental organizations over the years. So I think difference that's been kind of cool since I moved to Alberta is that I feel like a lot of my environmental work here has been very intersectional. So some examples of groups I've been involved with are Iron and Earth and Migrante Alberta. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard of either of these organizations, but Iron and Earth takes kind of a worker-centered, people-centered approach to the energy transition and climate action. So I started out volunteering for them. I also did a research paper just for a class on them in my first year of my master's. And that's how I got in contact with a few of the people that work there. And then for the past few months, I've been working with them as a community engagement officer. And one of the main things I've been helping them on is organizing and facilitating community engagement sessions here in Edmonton. And these sessions are designed to find out from local everyday people what they want the energy transition to look like and also what they want climate action to look like in their city. And then with Migrante Alberta, I've just recently gotten connected to them through my partner. And they focus on helping migrant workers who are mostly of Filipino descent, but also uh, lots of other kind of migrant workers sort of adjust to life in Canada and get them the resources that they need. And they also help a lot of undocumented and temporary foreign workers. And so they also do good work with acknowledging how industry transitions and climate change might disproportionately impact migrant workers, which I think is really cool. And they also sometimes partner with organizations like Climate Justice Edmonton. So they definitely try to bring that lens into it a bit. From what I've seen in my time here so far, uh, I just think that the climate movement is very intersectional and uh, a lot of the time very like worker focused. That's awesome. Definitely not something that I would have known that it's so intersectional, that kind of work. And it's super important work to be doing, especially with regards to migrant workers and any kind of the energy transition to have an intersectional lens. That's really cool, really interesting. Would you be able to speak a bit to what climate change impacts are kind of being experienced for communities and for people in Alberta? Yeah, so I think the most 
obvious one right now is the wildfires that Alberta has been experiencing a lot this summer already. And on top of that, the smoke that worsens the air quality, and that's from fires that happen in Alberta, as well as smoke that travels from BC or the US. And I think something to note here is that I've encountered in my interviews that we'll talk about a bit later, oil and gas workers who either do not think that the fires are getting worse necessarily, or see fires as sort of a natural occurrence. So uh, in my opinion, this might be one area that we can make a stronger connection between climate change and what's happening in the province at the moment. And then I think another climate impact that I've at least noticed, and that I think will just get increasingly noticeable, is how how climate change impacts agriculture because there's a huge portion of the population in Alberta who depend on agriculture for their livelihoods. And so it obviously impacts farmers a lot, but it also disrupts food systems. And that's something that will be felt by everyone. And this might just be anecdotal, but I feel like in the past couple of years, at least in my lifetime, I've noticed that there's been more shortages of different products and different kinds of produce than uh, I've ever experienced before. Uh, and so I just imagine that impact is going to kind of get worse and worse. And that's obviously not just specific to Alberta, too. That's like a national and global phenomenon, but it's definitely something I've noted. Yeah, that is yeah really interesting. And I think it comes down to a lot of like education as well, and especially when your first point where you were talking about how some workers think think that, you know, the fires aren't getting worse and they're an actual occurrence. And like they are to a certain extent, but there's a lot of still a lot of misconceptions around the kind of the impacts of climate change and like what is causing climate change and that like humans are causing climate change and, and what that kind of looks like. So it's kind of interesting to hear kind of like what the consensus is and what kind of people think about this. And and of course the impacts are so intersectional as well, kind of on food security and food systems and definitely would have a big impact on farmers. So that's really thing as well. What role would you say um, youth have had in the climate movement in Alberta and what role are they playing kind of now in advocating for these issues that you've talked about? Yeah, I'll speak on this generally first because I want to start out on a hopeful note. So I've been involved with climate activism since I was in elementary school, but what's been really cool to see as I guess a member of generation generation Z, I, I don't know, <laughs> that's what I would be. But yeah, even when I was in school, climate activism was really not that popular. I remember being the only person in my grade in an environmental club with like five to six members up until I got some of my friends to join me in grade 11. And it was always kind of, at least that part of my interest was always kind of seen as uncool. But it seems to me like it's become a lot more widespread with youth. And that obviously we saw that with the climate strikes in 2019 and the strikes that happened before and have continued after that. Uh, and I love seeing that youth are really at the forefront of climate action nowadays. And even though I know it's really frustrating because a lot of them feel like they have to do it uh, in order to secure a good future for themselves. And I don't think it should be necessarily left to them. And I know a lot of youth are really tired of the inaction on the part of people in positions of power. But yeah, from what I've seen, 
youth have definitely a major part in climate action in Alberta as well. But I think something that's been interesting to me compared to Vancouver is that I think that youth in Alberta who want to get involved in climate action, I think it's pretty difficult for them because a lot of their parents have a major stake in the fossil fuel industry or in the agricultural industry or in the processing industries. And they may not have the support of their peers, let alone their teachers or their parents. So uh, I can see how it might be more difficult for them to kind of show up to these big movements. Uh, But I do still see them showing up at the protests. And I think something interesting that I've noticed in my interviews for my research is that generally the younger participants will be more concerned about climate change. And it often falls on them to educate their parents about it and to kind of encourage them to rethink things with not just environmental issues, but also other social justice issues as well. And I think that's especially the case for people with immigrant or migrant parents, because a lot of the times when adults come here, they already kind of have a set way of thinking, or they may have a different educational background. And when they arrive in Canada, their main learning materials might just be what they hear uh, from their friends or their colleagues, or whatever the Canadian government supplies them in terms of their immigration packages. But those are often kind of skewed and maybe a little bit biased towards like a certain lens of our history here. So it really doesn't teach them everything. So I've noticed that the Asian youth that I've talk to definitely play a key role in educating their parents on, yeah, not just environmental issues, but also uh, issues related to Indigenous communities and what youth are experiencing in Canada. Wow, yeah. Sounds like, yeah, there's a big weight on youth in Alberta to kind of carry the climate movement and activism there, for sure. And I totally relate to what you said earlier. I grew up in Ontario, but my school didn't have an environmental club. And I was the person that was always on my friends for recycling and they would like make fun (laughs) of me for it. (laughs) Kind of growing up, I didn't know a lot about those things until I kind of got into like later high school and into university when I started educating myself on these issues a lot more. So yeah, very interesting to hear about that. And then it's so intersectional as well, those issues that you're talking about. So to kind of back up a little bit, I guess, some of the research that you were talking about earlier, can you tell us a little bit more about the research that you did in your uh, undergrad and your grad around energy transition? Yeah, for sure. I love talking about this. So for my undergrad thesis, I interviewed oil and gas workers in Fort McMurray, about their attitudes towards climate change and the energy transition. And that study was inspired by an interest that I had gained in uh, the polarization that we sometimes see between carbon intensive industry workers and environmental activists. So I would definitely identify myself more as an environmental activist, but I am still really interested in learning about the energy industry directly from energy workers. And I also wanted to see for myself if there really were these sort of climate denial narratives uh, among this sample of people that I would sometimes see depicted by environmental organizations uh, or environmental activists. And so my grad thesis research built on this same kind of idea of going directly to energy workers to talk about the energy transition. But this time around, I focused on interviewing immigrant and migrant oil and gas workers of Asian descent. And I saw this more as an opportunity to learn about uh, the overarching topic of the energy transition 
and to get more in depth with that, but also an opportunity to learn about my own community and my family history and my relations with other members of the Asian diaspora. That is super cool. When I think of Alberta, I think of like the oil and gas industry, like that is what comes to mind. And that's definitely kind of the the frame of mind that I look at. Like when I think of Alberta and the climate movement, I think not a lot of people there are interested in an energy transition or green energy because the oil and gas industry is so prominent there and other industries as well. So it's interesting that you kind of went down that path and did that research. And so, but first I want to ask, there's a lot of different terms. There's like energy transition and dust transition that people use to kind of describe this kind of transition away from oil and gas to kind of more renewable energy sources, how would you define an energy transition? The energy transition, simply put, is about shifting away from carbon-intensive industries and towards renewables, clean, green energy, electrification, and all those kinds of practices. Uh, And then energy justice, from my definition, from the literature I've read and how I've come to see it, is sort of a framework for understanding how energy infrastructure and development throughout history and now impact different communities in different disproportionate ways. And it also emphasizes that those communities should have a say in energy decisions moving forward. And so then the concept of just transition, which from my understanding started as a term mostly in NGO circles, but now has kind of been co-opted by a lot of governments. Essentially, this idea is that we, as we move away from carbon intensive industries, we need to be considerate of those who, who will be the most impacted from these industry shifts. So that includes workers, as well as the need to ensure that historically marginalized communities have equal access to energy, and that energy development is not going to exactly exacerbate injustices already experienced by marginalized communities. And to me, that last piece is really important, but I think it's sometimes overlooked because talking about injustices that might be exacerbated requires addressing much larger power structures that exist in our society. And there is actually a scholar that I cited in my grad thesis, Miles Lennon, who I think does a really good job of talking about this because he draws attention uh, in relation to Black communities and solar energy uh, to the fact that some bodies are kind of valued over others because of racial hierarchies that have come from structures of colonialism and capitalism. And I would add patriarchy in there because colored women around the world are often working some of the hardest jobs. Uh, And if this is not addressed, these kind of overarching uh, power structures, then we might continue to just build renewable energy infrastructure or other sustainable products or markets at the expense of marginalized bodies. And uh, it'll just kind of perpetuate the same system of doing that to feed the consumption of the dominant classes in our society. So uh, to me, something that takes a justice-informed lens, uh, it's about a lot more than just moving towards renewables, because I think we have to take into consideration how people are impacted along the entire supply chain. Absolutely, yeah. I love those definitions. So what did you find was the general sentiment around an energy transition for the folks that you interviewed, and specifically for the marginalized communities and the migrant workers that you had interviewed? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I feel like across all the interviews I've done, which at this point, I've done over two dozen interviews with different oil and gas workers. I think something that's been really consistent and really hopeful to me is that 
everyone I've interviewed in some way or another really wants to secure a good, healthy future for their children and future generations. And I think that that could be a really good starting point uh, to kind of bring more people into this movement. And I think that for Asian communities, you know, it's not to say that other communities don't also have these values of family and everything, but for a lot of Asian communities, family is like the number one priority. And, you know, some people I've interviewed have described it as sort of a clan mindset or something like that. And throughout Canada's history as well with bringing Asian workers over here and then sort of putting them on the margins. A lot of Asian families have been sort of torn apart. And there's a lot of migrant workers still today who, you know, might go five to 10 years without seeing their families back home because they feel like they can't get the kind of jobs that they need to sustain their families and their livelihoods in the country that their family is in. And so they come here to work and they get separated from their families. So I think that when it comes to, yeah, this idea of like a shared vision for a good and healthy future for generations. I really find that inspiring that a lot of people have that same hope, but it just kind of looks different for everybody. And at least in my experience, it's becoming less and less common to come across people who are actually completely against renewables or who do not believe in climate change whatsoever. Uh, and there's this other concept called ideological denialism that sort of explains other forms of climate denial that are more so about making justifications or sort of using logic to explain why the status quo needs to stay the same way it is now, uh, even if you do agree that climate change is human caused or that fossil fuels are uh, contributing to climate change. But from my conversations, I've noticed generally that the disagreement and I guess the concern uh, with the energy transition comes in relation more to the timeline that that will happen on and also the scale of moving away from fossil fuel. So when I say timeline, I mean that, you know, a lot of even fossil companies nowadays will throw out these terms like net zero by 2050 or something like that. Uh, and that's very different than future where we're completely off of fossil fuels. And a lot of people working in the industry do not necessarily see it as possible to be completely off of fossil fuels or they don't, you know, think that we can run our society fully on renewables, or they like to point out a lot of the issues with electrification and that kind of thing. And I think that's valid uh, in one sense. And also, it's important to understand that uh, these questions usually come from people feeling like their livelihoods are being threatened. So uh, I think that's all really important to take seriously. And yeah, that's that's sort of generally what I've noticed. So I guess to summarize, I don't think that there's as many people nowadays who are completely against the idea of an energy transition or completely against renewable energy, but it's more uh, there's disagreement with what that energy future will actually look like. Yeah, that makes me feel very hopeful that <laughs> that whole yeah are, are more forward than you think but it's just that idea of like how is that going to happen what is that going to look like that ambiguity that creates a lot of concerns and like fear in people because like you said at the end of the day we all just want to be happy and healthy and taken care of and have all the things mm -hmm. that we need but it's like kind of shifting the understanding that like we can't have those things unless we make these really big transitions there's just like no way around them at this point with where we are and so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good to hear that there is there's some hope there that was 
making me feel good. Um, what would you say is uh, Alberta's current progress towards an energy transition? So I would say that it would depend on who you ask, because I think that industry and government would probably say that Alberta is completely on track to reach emissions reduction targets uh, and that Alberta is a leader in the energy transition. And I think there's some truth to that because there are a lot of people and resources in this province uh, and, you know, a lot of really skillful people who could make waves in the energy transition. But I also think that a lot of people in positions of power are still kind of dragging their feet and that we could be doing a lot more with the resources and people that we do have in this province. So, uh, you know, there's inv- there's advancements always happening. Like a lot of companies are working on carbon capture or, you know, they're adopting different drilling practices and they're saying that that's drastically reducing the emissions that they're emitting. And there is truth to that, but I also still think it's not enough and that we need to kind of be more imaginative and maybe a little bit more innovative and do things a little bit faster. Can you speak to any of those things that you think kind of need to happen or any kind of like policies or plans that need to be in place to kind of get us there and ensure they're kind of on our way with having these energy transitions? Yeah, so I would say I'm pretty idealistic and I also am pretty community focused. Like I think there's a lot of power in people coming together and fighting for these kind of common goals of just a healthy future. Talking with everyday people who are mainly concerned about their families and livelihoods, I think what we really need to do is make plans and policies maybe or just programs, things that make the transition actually feel conceivable and feasible for everyday people. Uh, I think that people need something to actually believe in and you know they need to be able to see how that's possible for them Uh, so I think that would be really great if we focused more on you know uh, explaining to people directly how they can make a livelihood for themselves in renewable energy or you know in a different industry or how they can adopt a slower lifestyle or something like that. And organizations like Iron and Earth that I'm working with do a good job of that because they're really trying to show energy workers who currently work in fossil fuels how they could use their skills in renewable industries and other industries. Uh, So I think that's a really good step. And then I also would, with my work having been with, you know, with Asian communities, And with this focus on sort of the most marginalized people within the immigrant, migrant, Asian community, I would say are these sort of migrant workers who lose their uh, PR status or they are temporary foreign workers and then they become undocumented. I think that it really would start with addressing these injustices for the people in our communities who are the most marginalized. And the reason for that in, I guess, one sense is that when people are concerned about you know, the threat of deportation, for example, it's really hard to imagine a better future um, or to be involved with your community or to even think about anything else when your basic rights are under threat. And a lot of these people, they also don't have proper access to health care if they lose their status. And so that impacts not just them, but their children as well, who should be in schools learning and and fighting for that better future, but instead they have all these other things to be concerned about. So yeah, I think those are some of the things that I would like to see just more 
supports and focus on the most marginalized people in our communities and then also kind of making the energy transition seem like something that's actually uh, viable and possible for everybody. Yeah, I definitely think there's no moving forward with anything without doing really community-centered work and like Mm-hmm. consulting with communities and partnering with them to kind of see these things happen and yeah a really important point what you said with regards to like not just thinking about you know jobs in terms of the energy transition and maybe taking oil and gas jobs and turning them into renewable energy jobs but also like in terms of migrant workers and people who are not yet Canadian citizens like giving them the access to health care and all these other services that they are necessary and so so vital and important and making sure that they're supported in every single way not just in their jobs but also like community-wise and in all in their lives i start wrapping up here um mm-hmm. how can people who are listening to this podcast today support your work or the work that other people are doing in alberta around an energy transition and the climate movement i would love for anyone listening to this to follow and support the work of iron and earth and migrante alberta and migrante alberta is just a chapter of Migrante Canada. So it is like a national organization too. So whatever the local chapter is for where you are located. Yeah, on a personal note, I I don't know, I'm just really all for community-based work. So I would rather people support those organizations than follow me as a person, I guess. Yeah, totally. Is there anything that you would want people to know about Alberta, about your province? I think that we need to go deeper in our understanding than just dismissing people in Alberta as climate deniers. Being from Vancouver, I think that that is somewhat of a common narrative or that there is just this intense polarization from province to province uh, when really everyone is just trying to make a livelihood often based on whatever natural resources are the most common in that province. So, you know, in BC, there's similar issues that go on with logging, for example. But for some reason, it's like people have a hard time sympathizing with people who are worried about losing their jobs in oil and gas. So, yeah, I just think it's really important to understand where people are coming from. And oftentimes, I think it is because people are worried about their losing their livelihoods. Uh, it's also because fossil fuel corporations have put a lot of effort into feeding people these narratives about how they're improving and how they're not really that bad so maybe a bit more education in that way of just how to identify you know misinformation uh, or how to sort of be critical with what you're seeing from corporations like that and uh, I also think that it doesn't help when workers especially feel like everyone is against them in the environmental movement and I I've seen uh, I think a lot of environmental groups doing a better and better job of making it clear that they're not trying to be against workers in this. But I do think that collaboration and, you know, taking like a, an approach of maybe building partnerships with unions or with work organizations is always a good thing too. That's awesome. So true. And to end kind of on a a positive fun note what's something fun that you like to do outdoors in your area in Alberta yeah I love being on the water so my partner and I just got a paddle board so we've been using that on some of the lakes and ponds near Edmonton I was a little bummed being from Vancouver not being able to swim as often here so it's been really nice to be able to still be on the water in some way and I'm hoping that we can take a trip 
camp soon, maybe, uh, and visit my aunt who lives there uh, to be able to take the paddleboard out on some of those lakes as well. That sounds like so much fun. Uh, I hope you get to do lots of paddleboarding this summer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's everything for today. Thank you so much again for coming and speaking with us today, Ella. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Annie Martell, Ella Kim Marriott, and Lily Barrow for coming onto the podcast to share your experiences and knowledge around the climate crisis in your provinces. To learn more about Suit and stay up to date on Establish, you can follow at ShakeUpTheEstab on Instagram and Twitter and find us at ShakeUpTheEstab.org. Establish is supported through funds from the Jane Goodall Institute of Canada. The music you hear in the podcast today was created by Greg Markov greg markov on insta this episode was produced by me jordan kilgore and atreyu lewis thank you all for listening